Welcome to the Batphone Podcast, where we talk about combat sports, comic books, gaming, pop culture, and anything else my friends want to talk about. Hosted by yours truly, Nick Batman Hughes. All right, picking up the Batphone this week is the third Diaz brother himself, <laughs> Jake the Fire Lord Hurl. How's it going, man? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Um, well, I'm going to jump right in and, and start putting you over, as I always say. Three and three is a professional, yeah. uh, professional flyweight. One of the OGs of the original MMA scene in South Australia, uh, the original promotion being MMA Down Under. Yep. You fought predominantly on that promotion. Since then, have fought on Eternal. Since then, have fought on DFC. Uh, you were around back in the original days of the SABJJ MMA crew as well. And I think, you know, you've been doing this a lot longer than many people would realize. Uh, you've been a, a lifelong dedicated martial artist and a lifelong dedicated fighter. And you're, you're a true asset to the academy in the way that you're highly coachable. You have a very clear and a very defined style, but the additions that you're able to make to that are pretty impressive. And, and I know that myself personally, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, the fight camps that I've been involved in with you are some of my favorite ever from a coaching perspective uh, because of the way it's all come together. But um, yeah, from your perspective, I'd love to hear your history with martial arts specifically and how you began this journey. Yeah, well, if we want to go straight from the start, I suppose I would have been, it would have been back in like 2009 and I was like in high school, I would have been year nine, about 14 years old. And I was always like getting into a bit of trouble at school and you know, the usual kind of stuff, getting in fights, all that stuff. And then my friend one day was like, hey, like, have you heard of this, like, UFC stuff? And I was like, no, nah, what's that? I had no idea about it. And he showed me, like, these videos. And I was like, wait, like, people are getting paid to do this? Mm. Like, this is, this is crazy. And my dad was always, like, a massive boxing fan. So I'd been around that kind of stuff, but I didn't know there was stuff where you could, like, kick people and, like, take people down and all that. So anyway... One thing led to another and I started jiu-jitsu. I would have been 15, started at SABJJ, and I was like, this is great. Like, I'm one of the smallest people and like, this is perfect for like, my body type, did the research. And then, I believe it was yourself, Tom Crosby, and maybe Dave DeConti that were yeah. having the fights in Perth. Yeah. And then that's when the MMA uh, classes started to happen again at yeah. SABJJ. Because it had subsided for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of driving force and motivation behind it. We, <clears throat> Because Dave had fought previously, Taz had fought previously, um, Mike had fought previously, and even myself and Tom had fought previously. But it was very sporadic and it was very up in the air. There wasn't like a driving force behind the motivation to do MMA classes at SABJJ at the time, which is completely yeah. understandable. It's a jiu-jitsu gym. But I remember when, I think it was Super Fight Australia, Perth. Yeah. When those fights got announced, Tom versus Pete Kennedy, um, Dave fought Glenn Austin, and I fought uh, Patrick Conroy. Yeah. And when those fights got announced, then we really like dove back into it and you became an, in an integral part of that entire camp. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty wild because I went from like jiu-jitsu like nothing and then straight into this like being a part of the fight camps and it was just 
it was wild. And from then, I was like, nah, this is what I want to yeah. do. It didn't so, dawn on me how young you were at that point in time <laughs> as well. Just like, we just thought you were this hard nut, you know? And, and I think also at the time, like, and since then it has happened as well. And we've really sort of identified with the stuff that we've been interested in, uh, you know, whether it's been skating, pop culture, anime, whatever it's been, it's like we've sort of paralleled existences in that certain to that extent but then in terms of fighting it was like well if this guy can do it then I can do it as well this is where I'm meant to be I sort of felt that from you uh, and you really stepped up as a, an all-round martial artist as well at that point in time because if you were to say that jiu-jitsu was what you were doing predominantly I would say that you were predominantly a striker so from out from the outside of looking in you were already well-rounded oh that that means a lot because Obviously, boxing and striking has been my focus mm. as of late. And a lot of people, like I've had people when I first started sparring here, ask me if that was my base. Yeah. And when I say no, like I did jujitsu for years, people mm. are kind of like, oh, wow. Like, you know, so yeah, that kind of, that means a lot, you know, saying yeah. that I'm well-rounded. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's the way I remember the coming up of J. Curl. You know what I mean? I think that a lot of our game plans around that time frame, uh, if you think maybe back to the fight with Jared Ali, yes. a lot of our game plans around that time period were grappling-based game plans, you know? And I remember you going through, like, a takedown, drag, pass, strike, rear naked choke in the change rooms, <laughs> and then you did that in the fight to win. Yeah. Quick side note, Jared has actually started to come to train with us. Has he really? Yeah, he's been training in the fundamental MMA classes oh, and the wow. jiu-jitsu classes and stuff. He's been out of the game for a little while, but um, yeah, he wanted to come back and do MMA, and now he's walked back into How Trinity, so I'm sure he's been avoiding you. <laughs> but, oh, uh, you great. know, eventually he'll be a good training partner for you. But yeah, yeah back to what we were saying, like that that step-by-step incremental process of that's how I remember you because that's how I remember everyone. We were like jujitsu people who then went and did MMA. And I I suppose I had a level of advantage because I was wrestling as well. Like that was the big thing for me is like I I pushed uh, positional dominance and wrestling. But even that being said, uh, you know... I felt like I was one of the driving forces behind diversifying. I, I resented the idea that, that we were a grappling club, you know, who did MMA. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, the whole advent of Trinity MMA itself and, and breaking away from SABJJ was based on the idea that fights were picking up, right? And uh, we were going here, there and everywhere to try and diversify our striking skills, wrestling skills, jiu-jitsu skills, working in between the lines as MMA practitioners as well. And what was beginning to happen is we had a space to train MMA maybe once a week. Mm. And if we were going to be stepping into the cage against guys who were training MMA every single day or, you know, multiple times a week, or they're coming from, you know, Victorian or Eastern Seaboard based clubs who were MMA based practitioners based clubs, then we're going to be at a seriously bad deficit before we ever step into that cage. So breaking away and just streamlining our training towards MMA was our whole idea. But initially when we did that, I mean, it wasn't easy. Yeah. You know what I mean? We yeah. had to leave a lot of people who were, you know, our strong bonds that we had made within that community. And, and it took a little while for you to come through as well. You know, you were looking outside of Trinity MMA to try and keep your MMA progressing. And you did so to a really good extent. It was quite a few years later that you came back to us as our training group uh, for Trinity MMA. 
what in from your perspective prompted you to do that at that time so uh, i stuck around as you said for a few years with SABJJ, um, you know, Michael Toyama did a lot for me and I really appreciated everything he did. Um, and we still have a good relationship. But it came to a point where I fought Michael Manu on the first DFC. Yeah, I remember and that. that like, I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to be, you know, try and, you know, talk shit. But that was a real hard fight and probably a fight that I should have taken later in my career. Mm-hmm. And when that fight happened, after it, I had to take a sit back and be like, okay, like if I want to do MMA, that's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was doing one one day a week of MMA training. And I had one training partner who was like, should have been like in the beginner's class kind of thing. So I felt that if I wanted to pursue MMA as opposed to just jujitsu, I needed to join an MMA club. Yeah. So I already had the foundations built with this club and I was coming here for sparring, like now and then but because i already knew all you guys and i knew what you were about i was like this is the perfect fit yeah so i met i you know contacted you guys and it's been the best thing since yeah so, yeah yeah <laughs> look i mean it, i guess it was from my perspective it was a little bit more emotional than i realized it was going to be like watching the manu fight sucked yeah. for me i was upset mm. that that occurred i was upset that that happened to you for for a lot of different reasons but I was just upset upset that you had to go through that. And uh, it made me sad. But then, you know, this resurfacing of Jake Hurl into Trinity MMA, that made me happy. Like, I was genuinely happy for you to be there. And because of that turnaround, I was pretty driven to make sure that anytime you were in the academy and everything that you were doing was well worth your time. And it, we took our time yeah. as well. It took We took a concerted amount of skill development time before you then did return to the cage and you return to the cage again, we took the fight with Ray Lawley. Yeah. Now, this is the one that I was talking about where this was, and again, I, I talked to Ant about this. This was one of my favorite fights and fight camps to be involved in yeah. uh, from a technical standpoint. I don't dislike Ray. Yeah. So I don't want to be like, man, we smashed this guy. No. Yeah. I'm talking about you from a technical standpoint, from the beginning of fight camp to the end of it, to the weight cut to the application mentally and physically. So initially it was a lot, we knew he was, he was a brown belt at the time, but he was right on the cusp of becoming a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We knew who Ray was because he's been in the scene forever and known as a highly skilled practitioner as well, especially on the ground. Um, Incredibly strong for his weight and size, incredibly skilled, but very specific, okay? We knew that given how your fights had gone in the past, he was, he would, definitely have to weather some sort of storm uh he didn't know what type of storm it was going to be but he was going to have to weather it in order to get anywhere near uh, applying his game plan so for us it was a lot about precision timing um, making sure that the storm was measured and then we went to worst case scenario that was when you learned how to defend every leg lock under the sun (laughs) i remember that whole process you know I i would not stop leg locking you until I couldn't leg lock you yeah. until you stopped me every single time and you <laughs> did that uh, a lot about modifying your sprawl matted or sprawling pushing the head the second phase sprawling as well where you're posting and getting a secondary line of defense so defending in chains as well as attacking in chains and then if you were grounded staying in that MMA range that mid range yeah and when the fight occurred and you went through that first round, literally every single thing 
that had been focused on and timelined out through that fight camp, you applied perfectly in that fight camp, and you, in the fight. And you did it with a level of composure that set you up for the second round in which you had already called prior to the fight which, yes. which punch was going to finish the fight, yeah. and that's what happened. There's actually, sorry if I may. No, um, of course. <laughs> there's actually a really cool video that my brother has, because as I was leaving the day of the fight, my brother said, so how do you think it's going to go? Mm. And I said to him, I was like, start of the second round, I'm going to knock him out with the right hand. And he's like, oh yeah, bullshit, <laughs> whatever. And then like my brother's filming it in the crowd. Mm. Well, my brother's friend was filming it in the crowd. And my brother turned to my friend. It's all on camera. And he says, my brother said second round, he's got this. <laughs> And then it comes out, and, and I, you know, you know what, what happened happens. So. <laughs> Some people might <laughs> see that as cockiness, but I see it as calculated because yeah. I know what you went through in that fight camp, and I know I can just see from the, the beginning of the fight right through. There was a reason why you had that level of confidence because of the work that you put in, and it was a completely different Jay. And going yeah. back again, I was pretty emotional because I'd known you since you were fifteen. Yeah, And I saw the timeline of events play out and I felt like the type of character that you were, a character that I identified with, someone who had worked very hard to be in the position that were in, they were in, had had to face lots of adversity, was an incredibly loyal human, an incredibly layered human as well. People sort of misunderstand or misinterpret your intentions a lot. Mm. For you to get that level of success because of the hard and smart work that you put in and because you made some really tough decisions, big choices and big changes, you got that payoff at the end and you deserved every little bit that you got of it. Because of all of that together and the technical aspects of how the fight played out, that's why it was one of my favorite fights to have been involved in as a coach. Yeah. Uh, and I know that we're going to get more and more opportunities to do that as we move forward. Um, I mean, you aren't being matched up with anyone who's easy ever. No, I've, ever. I've never had an easy fight like from the start, <laughs> which I like because <laughs> I'm a fighter and yeah. I, don't, I don't want to be fighting anyone that's 0-3 and three or like doesn't have a win to their name or is ranked number 30 or whatever. Like, but that's hard for you to get up for in the morning. Yeah. You know I mean, like you know, at, when you fought Daniel, like, yeah, I mean, you could have had that fight in three fights time, but... Mm the type of fighter that you became because of that process is, is absolutely, it's, Im, it's immeasurable how beneficial that was. And yeah. I feel like you're, you're the type of character who you have levels to your personality, right? You can mm -hmm. dial it up, dial it down, all this kind of stuff, but you are who you are mm -hmm. and you're a fighter fighter. You know what I mean? You're not an athlete fighter. No. It's not based on, you know, how much cardio you can push or how much weight you can push. It's based on the mental acuity to perform in that moment in time. And if we set you up with that, that tenacity is, yeah. is always going to be there. But if we set you up with that mental acuity, that's when the skills will measure out level out to that tenacity and you can really make something really positive out of these fights and the way that you fight as well um is pretty intimidating to a lot of people and you know when when i put out the um the questions you know everyone's like hey, he's the third diaz brother or something like that. <laughs> i mean obviously you draw a lot of inspiration from them but you probably more so identify with them is do you feel that that's a true statement yeah well i i feel like there's a lot of things that i can for lack of a better term, relate to with them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the main things is the mentality because 
I don't think of it as a sport. Mm. A lot of people go into a fight and they think of it as a sport. And for me, if I think of it as a sport, for example, I'm going to go out there and say you're playing basketball. If you play basketball, you're like, okay, I can win or I can lose. But if you're in a fight and say you're out in the street and there's a fight, losing isn't even in your mind. So the way I think of a fight is it's a fight. And I'm, losing isn't even in my mind. I'm just going out there to fight. And I feel like that's what they do as well. And, you know, there's relations to our upbringings and stuff like that and always having the best circumstances and money and all of that stuff. So when I can see that two people can get to where they are through just hard work, that's inspiring to me. Mm. So I feel like their mentality isn't a forced mentality either as well. It's not something that they heard about online and then they took on for themselves. It's not something that got coached into them. Yeah. It's It was within them before they ever began fighting. Yeah. And in fact, they were always fighting. Yeah. So for them, they look outward at how everyone else views the sport or fighting or the art or whatever it is. And they're like, you're all crazy. Like, we have to fight. They yeah. see the media obligations and like, this is stupid. This is pointless. It's not because it's not going to affect the outcome of the fight. Like... No matter what you say now or how much we stand in front of this camera or how much we talk to each other, we still have to fight each other. So for me, I can't enjoy the process. I can't like you the whole time because I have to fight. It's like fighting is one of the most natural and unnatural things in terms of the industry of fighting, right? If you bump into someone on the street... Right, and um, they said something very disparaging about your race, culture, ethnicity, wife, husband, <laughs> mother, or whatever it might be. There's that initial moment of uh, like turmoil, yeah, mental, emotional, physical turmoil where this is about to happen, it's imminent, is it right, is it wrong, it's fight or flight, right? Yeah. And that's a base human emotion. Now, the industry of fighting takes that moment and elongates it. That's right. Over an yeah. eight-week fight camp or yeah. however long it's going to be. That's right. Which yeah. draws out a level of confusion and anxiety in a human being that is completely abnormal. Yeah. And I think with Nick and Nate Diaz, you see that. And I remember that, uh, I think it was like a UFC embedded before Nick Diaz fought GSP. Yeah. And that was one of the best pre-fight build-up promos I've ever seen. Just the absolute polar opposites in their ideology. Yeah. And Nick Diaz said something that was very telling. He's like, if you want to be good at this, you've got to hate it. Yeah. Now, I understand that. Yes. I understand that because I was a swimmer yeah. growing up. Yeah. All right? And that is so constant, so consistent, so deteriorating. It's every morning, every night, competing yeah. every weekend. And he was a triathlete. That's right, yeah. So he was a swimming, cycling, long distance running. Like he knows what that mental grind is like, but he yeah. also equates it with success. So there is that duality of comfortable with being uncomfortable right. and the, the, not just the comfort zone, but the security zone in hard work equating to success. Um, but all of that being said, like, yeah, you gotta have a level of height yeah. in order to be incredibly successful, but you also have to know how to channel it. So I think because of how immersive uh, their upbringing was within the realm of, of fighting and being in that mindset all the time, with their fighting, they lack urgency because it's just so normal. 
Yeah. Right? Everything that's happening is so normal. But what they lack in urgency, they make up for in tenacity and precision and volume and ability to continue over and over and over again with any striking setup, any grappling setup. Like they just know how to replicate it uh, because it's so common. But I mean, I guess that's my outside of observation of the Diaz brothers. But I've also been able to identify a lot of those traits in you as well. Like outside of fighting... You have a very, you live a very multifaceted life. Yeah. But nothing is more suited to you than when you're in the academy. Yeah. Yeah. And you work hard when you're in the academy. And if you were to take a fight with some guy who's 0-3 or whatever, not being disrespectful, but like if you were to take a fight with some guy who was who was 0-3, it wouldn't put you in enough turmoil yeah. to get you out of bed. And yeah. to get you in the gym feeling like there was a level of oppression worthy of stepping up to the plate. 100%. And I think, I think that's honestly just how you operate best. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I feel like in my life there always has to be some kind of chaos. And the chaos of the chance of fighting some beast mm. is what's going to make me work hard. Like yeah. you said. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Well, I've, I've seen it bring out... Uh, an incredible, an incredible fire of uh, Jake. I mean, what, what we've seen you've been able to come up with in the academy. You've got such a a good base understanding of your style. Now, when you make additions, uh, whether it be you know uh, context additions, so it's a small technical addition with cage defense, a small technical addition with how you get up and escape and all that kind of stuff. It all just makes so much sense to you. Uh, that yeah it's, it's just so obvious that it's exactly where you should be and what you should be doing but um i mean fighting is fighting but there's other sides to you as well yeah uh, just like there's other sides to me i'm a well-known batman nerd i'm a well-known warhammer 40k guy i mean i i post weekly batman pics for for no one you know what i mean like, I'm, i've been posting weekly batman pics on facebook for I don't know, since i've been on facebook yeah. you know what i mean and I don't ever assume that anyone's looking at them. And then if I don't post one, I get messages asking me like, are you okay, man? What's going on? What's wrong with it? But, you know, you know, I play Warhammer 40K. I have Eldar armies as well. And again, like, I identify with that with you because you have those different facets to your life. So Fire Lord, do you want to tell people where that comes from? <laughs> All right. So Fire Lord is kind of like a double meaning. The main meaning, for those of you that are unaware, is from the cartoon Avatar The Last Airbender. So it's probably the best cartoon that you can watch. Got a lot of life lessons, but yeah, the Fire Lord's from that, so check it out. A lot of life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Your license plate is Fire Lord, man. Yeah, my yeah. license plate is Fire Lord. My Instagram name's Fire Lord. You know, it just fits. Yeah. Know? So yeah, there's that. And then... Um, for those of you that don't know as well, in graffiti terms, when something's like really good, you say it's fire. <laughs> so like, you know, there's that. And then there's the fighting, like, you know, you've got fire in your hands. So it's just like three different things that kind of fit with my life. And then it's just kind of fit. That's so, awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, like you've never had an official fight name, you know? No. I, mean? I guess that's what it's going to be. Well, like I don't really want yeah. a fight name, you know, like the way that I see fighting is that like, it's real to me. And mm -hmm. like, that's all it is. Like, yeah. I just want fighting to be fighting. Like, I'm cool with, like, Fire Lord to be my Instagram name and stuff, but as <laughs> tournament fighting, it's just Jake, you know? Yeah, so, that's yeah. cool. 
yeah. I think it's it's interesting like you touched on the graffiti world and the graph world I mean that whole scene it takes on different forms and in different cultures I know you know if we're talking hip hop and African American culture that's where the graffiti scene really shines but in Australia like yeah the graph scene the hip hop scene you know the grassroots hip hop scene like Australian hip hop they're all intertwined, but it's also intertwined with the skate scene. Mm. Um, it's intertwined with the entire culture around that. And a lot of kids growing up really identified with that. So you kind of do it all at the same time. Yeah. Like if you were a skater, you also had a tag. You know yeah. what I mean? And if you were tagging, you probably also were involved in some level of freestyling and ciphers, you know, back in the day. And there was like this whole... There was a pretty big culture that began, you know, began mid to late 90s, really. But it picked up 2000, 2005. And it certainly spawned and and morphed into different things. But I remember being a part of that culture. And, you know, when when COVID hit, Miles Simpson started up an online group, which was the skate apocalypse. (laughs) You know, every day someone would have to, you know, film a video of them setting a trick and they would all have to land it. And of course, it's all us old has-beens struggling to land kickflips and heel flips, including myself. And I stuck in there, man. Yeah, I stuck did. in there by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. But then you were landing like half cat big spin flips and shit like that. And I'm like, what the... Jake, you're not old. You're not a has-been. You can still skate. Get out of this group and stop ruining this game. But you won, didn't you? Yeah, well... I did. But, uh, <laughs> you won the whole game. You won the whole game of Skate Apocalypse during COVID. And uh, you never got a prize for it as well, apart from this recognition. Yeah, right the now. bragging rights right now. That's all I need. <laughs> but I mean, I grew up watching a lot of skate, skate videos. What were some of your like favorite skate videos and skate parts? So, oh, I really um, related to the local kind of skate video. Yeah. So like the Daily Grind video. Yeah. That was the main one that I liked. Um, and then, yeah, right was always a good video. I really liked that. <laughs> Mainly for like the Owen Wilson skit. Uh, skit. Yeah, yeah. Because for so long, people thought that was real. Yeah, I, I still <laughs> thought it was him, you know what yeah. I mean? When he just like pulls this blunt like down, yeah. down the whole, down the rail. Like. Yeah, like, and everyone thought that, that was back before there was like real internet editing and stuff. Yeah. And like, it was just a real fun time. Yeah. And like, you watch that and like, you could have a laugh and like, you know. Those are the days. Yeah, there's a lot of good skate videos around at the time. I mean, there was a lot of really crisp ones, but I never really gravitated towards those. I I gravitated towards more of like the non-crisp ones. Of course, I like almost round one, round two, round three. I like Rodney Mullen versus Day One Song and stuff like that. But I also like cheese and crackers, you know, less refined. But I also like all the flip videos. Sorry, really sorry. Because it was like Ali Balala and Arto Sari and Tom Penny and those dudes who were just out there on the fringes, but just ripping in the way that you would like rip with your friends. Yeah, yeah. You know, doing doing skating that wasn't highly refined or even highly edited. Yeah. You know, and they're splicing in just shots of like Bulala just yakking everywhere and ripping his jeans and stuff like yeah. that. And yeah. for whatever he became after that, I still remember those, you know, those skate videos and those skate scenes. And there was like other like European brands where they'd go on tour and stuff like that and you just got to see these guys dropping in off of like overpasses for 20 bucks so yeah. that they could eat food <laughs> that day and shit like that. I mean, that that's what skating was. And I think 
Um, have you seen any Thrasher King of the Road tour? Yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, that's what skating is. Yeah, you know what I cool. mean? That's cool. Because that's I remember being one of those kids, one yeah. of those guys who would like go and sleep at City Skate because there was cameras. You know, yeah. and we thought yeah. Before, yeah. like that made it safer. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because there was cameras there. Yeah, like you couldn't do all the other stuff you wanted to do there, but at least you could sleep there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'd go off to the like Highly Street convenience store to get meagering and yeah. come back and like yeah. I mean, those. I think there's something to be said for that. And I've talked yeah. about it before. Like a lot of martial artists, you know, whether they're synonymous with certain types of cultures, like surfers or skaters or rock climbers and stuff like that for me yeah it was skating yeah it was that initial creativity burst yeah definitely and understanding that yeah we're all doing the same thing but we can do it in a really unique way and just having the freedom in that moment in time and i know how this is going to sound but to just be trash yeah like just for a little while you know what i mean not have to worry about being on this track or being refined because it allows you a net of exploration as well. But at the same time, you still had to work hard to be good. Yeah, definitely. Right? You couldn't definitely. just rock around and, and get smashed every single day and be good at yeah. skating. You still had to dedicate time to it. So it was like this shared consciousness of people trying to get good at skating but at the same time just being trash (laughs) and exploring that whole lifestyle um but i think it has its merits at the end of the day did did you ever feel like there was like a a time period there where skating took a rapid progression for you because of those variables playing out yeah so it would have been around 2007 to 2008 so i was like year seven year eight and this is when, like, the lessons that I learned during that time period, I apply to every aspect of yeah. my life now. So, when, like, because I was a street skater, so I was mainly skating stair sets and stuff like that because I sucked at Bert and I didn't like it. So, we'd always go to school, to school, to school on the weekends and just skate. And what I found was, you know, you'd roll up to a stair set and you'd always, like, stop beforehand and mm. stutter and look down and be like, okay, I can do this. And you'd do that, like, ten times and you'd be so scared of doing it. And it was always, like, that first attempt, even if you were, like, nowhere near committing, nowhere near landing, like, once that first shot was out the way, it was easy. Yeah. And so, like, I've applied that to everything I do now. Like, I try it once, and then the rest of the time it's easy, you know? So, Yeah. yeah, that little progression there is what, like, really helped me with everything. Yeah. Including skating. So. It's hard for people to understand that, right? Because yeah. you see skate videos put together and it's just like, perfect, 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 perfect. 100%. Like, yeah. when I was skating and I'd, like, even now, if I'm doing a trick or something, people will be watching me and, like, I might not land it the first three or four times and people are like, oh. I'm like, no, like, this is what happens in the yeah. real world. This you know? is reality, right? Yeah. Like, you have to fail. Yeah. That, uh, that's very insightful. Skating also does teach you how to fail that's constantly. Right. Yeah. Like you bail and fail a trick astronomically greater yep. in percentage than you land a trick. Like you land that trick one time clean yep. and you walk away. That's it. Because you don't want to ever have to go through <laughs> that war again. You know That's what I mean? It. It's scary. Who's going to look at a 20 set stair and be like, yeah, I'm going to jump down that 80 times. Today. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? And then I'm going to put some wood underneath it. I'm going to put some wood with some wheels underneath it. I'm going to flip it around in a nonsensical way, catch it and then roll away. Like it's not going to yeah. happen. It's not logical. No. Um, but it's, you know, it's a great lesson in physics at the same time. 
but you're right. Like, there's a good series. I mean, Thrasher do a couple of good series. They also do My War, yep. which it kind of depicts that, right? The skater talks about just rolling up to a really daunting spot. And again, on video, doesn't look like much. Yeah. But if you were standing in front of the actual architectural structure, you'd be like, how? I wouldn't even contemplate trying to walk down that level yeah. and roll down. But they, they're so creative and they're so understanding of their capabilities they're like okay i can create on this yeah. i can traverse this but i can do something here that's never actually physically been done before it's never been conceptualized mentally yeah. and it's never been actualized physically and they make it happen through attrition yeah and that is a huge life lesson you know what i mean that is a huge like a huge mental platform to take into any part of your life and I remember even in the Zero or Die video with Chris Cole, like yeah. that massive tray flip uh, on the Wallenberg 4, yeah. right? And it's just the start of his part is just him bailing it. Yeah. Like five, six, yeah. seven times, right? And I thought that's how many times he bailed it. Five, six, seven. Yeah. And he, then he gets it at the end, right? Yeah. The, after his whole other part, which is amazing where he does like that, um, that uh, helicopter kickflip, like the 360... Full body kickflip yeah. down that yeah. mat. I was that was uh, I was that was like butter. I was so it's like, I've been such a fan of skating for so long. And I'm just so shit at it still. I'm like I wish I was better. But that being said, even recently they did a my war with Chris Cole, or maybe it was on the Nine Club we were just talking about it on the podcast. Uh, yeah. He bailed that tray flip like sixty times yeah. before he got it. Yeah. yeah, and that is absolutely ridiculous i mean bullshit level of pain bullshit yeah. level of doubt yeah like okay so i'm getting so close why am i failing yeah what do i need to do differently like the, going in on the detail the intricacy of what you need to modify and in what order in order to go from almost getting it to getting it yeah. that's a that's a huge gap to bridge uh-huh. and that's a great lesson definitely yeah like i feel the in skating like you said you bail something 60 times and it's not like oh I didn't get it like you're getting thrown down like 20 mm. flights of stairs and you're landing on your back you're landing on your head like you're getting messed up in the process it's like being in a fight you're yeah. getting messed up so like if I'm in training or if I'm in a fight and something doesn't go my way I don't get disheartened because I've been doing this skating like, I've been doing it since I was like 8 years old you know yeah. like getting thrown around like oh shit I can't get it I can't get it but that's alright I'm gonna pick myself up and I'm gonna keep doing it until I can get it because yeah. that's like the skater's mentality you know yeah yeah so I was a bowl skater, but like trashy bowls, like I liked yeah. pools, yeah. And banks that you shouldn't be able to do stuff. It was mainly because I was just heavy and yeah. couldn't kickflip, you know what I mean? Like I couldn't ollie, I could kickflip, I could do some flip tricks, but I was just way better through transition and like flowing and riding and stuff like that. That's why I like, yeah, bowls and skate parks that have awkward mm. transition as well, because you have to traverse it slightly differently. Yeah. But again, yeah, I remember being up at the Victor Harbour Bowls with the Oververt and just running this line where I would just uh, like backside, just little backside tap, or like a tail slide tap on the Oververt because yeah. it's easy to yeah. do. And then shoot myself down into the flat of the big bowl and then a massive front side carve to like lay back grind on the big bowl. And I did it five times and I'm like, yeah, 
that feels amazing. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm going to try and go around the kink now because I, I, I figured I had it on the back end of the bowl. I'm like, I'm going to go around this kink. Yeah. yeah I don't remember that. <laughs> because I hooked up on the kink, like going a billion miles an hour and just KO'd myself on the oh. concrete um, at the Victor Harbour Bowls. But again, like, who? I didn't care. Yeah. Like I got up and I did more. Yeah. Like it's one of those things that, it, it definitely instills within you a different type of mentality. And I also remember thinking around the same time period, like, yeah, if I fall on concrete, then what's falling on mats? Who cares? <laughs> like, who cares if I get taken down on the mats? Like, if, yeah. if I'm just going to fall this hard on concrete. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I like that. I like going into the mentality behind things as well. I guess skating afforded us a little more than we realized. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, you don't think of it when it's happening. And like, I didn't really think about it till now, but it, yeah. it makes sense, you know? Yeah. 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 And even with what you said about just rolling up to it. Yeah. Like, it's always that first shot. Yeah. You know? And I think that's the same as life. You're always scared of doing something until you do it. Yeah. So. So it's like rolling up to the set is like walking into the cage. Yeah. 100%. A hundred percent. Especially like your first fight. Yeah. You don't know what to expect. Same as like the first trick. You don't know what's going to happen. And then you have your first shot and then every shot after or every fight after it gets a bit easier. So yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, wow, that got way deeper than I thought. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about skating and then just me like being shit and skating. <laughs> I thought that's how that was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but there's more. There's always, always, always more. Always. Um, so I don't want to blow up your spot too much, man, but no. you're a Harry Potter guy. Yeah. And you have to talk about it. Yeah. Otherwise, the people won't know, Jake. <laughs> the people won't know. Yeah. Uh, I like Harry Potter. Oh, that, okay. That, that's it. That's the end of the conversation is I like Harry Potter. Please share some level of extent. Right. Uh, for example, do you own a wand? Yeah, all right, so, <laughs> all right we'll, we'll go in, we'll go in. So I also, like, I'm a pretty big collector, but yeah. I'm not a set collector. I only collect villains. So I have a shelf. Well, actually, it's turned into a corner of my room now where I have a bookcase, a shelf, and then just a lot of shit on the floor of every villain that I like. And I have something from the movie or, like, some kind of collectible of them there. And so, yes, I do have Voldemort's wand. Um, <laughs> Which is numbered, so it's, oh, it's proper. Shit. But yeah, so I'm a big Harry Potter fan. I started when like the first book came out, and I've read all the books a handful of times, seen the movies even more, and yeah, I just like it. I think it's great. Like the idea of it is cool, and it would be sick to actually like you know live in that universe as well. Do you have any favorite moments or favorite ideas behind it as well? I love the idea of. I know this is going to sound real bad, and I just want to point out that I'm, this isn't my thought process in real life, but I like the idea. Sure, Jay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of, like, there's mudbloods, like, half-bloods, and like, there's, like, pure wizards, and, like, they all have beef with each other. I think it's, like, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the idea of they coexist with each other and they have like all different departments and like it's hidden from us because like the muggles or non-magic people like drove them out with like the witch burning so they've had to live in like a secret society and they can't integrate and i don't know i think it's kind of cool you know yeah man it gives you a lot of respect for 
you know, like writers and creators who can conceptualize this type of mm. idea and bring it to the forefront. I mean, I'm not a massive Star Wars fan, but again, the writers behind Star Wars were able to bring that into light. They just bring big worlds, big immersive worlds. Lord of the Rings, for example, and even like the whole fantasy genre in gen in general. Like I'm a I'm a Dungeons and Dragons guy. Yeah, I play half elves. Yeah, you know? and then I play rogues and arcane trickster rogues and like pickpockets and stealth guys and stuff like that. But the lore behind things is absolutely amazing and even with warhammer right i play eldar but i play a very specific set eldar are essentially futuristic space elves okay all right yeah so but i play a very specific section of them called Orthway, and they're like the psychic version of these guys uh, not so much the warrior race but more like the the diviners and stuff like that yeah and even within that there's specific subsections of it like i play a black guardian storm host and i also have a a uh, troop of harlequins who uh, who have who are headed up by a solitaire who aid Eldrad Ulthran in like covert operations through the webways. None of that is documented. Yeah, that is yeah. all me. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Like that is, and it's been afforded to me by this medium of creativity. Mm. So I think that I think that will begin to happen with the Harry Potter universe as well because you're starting to get open world RPGs. Yeah. And isn't there like a theme park as well? That's yeah. a couple of theme parks that are opened up. Yeah, there's a few. There's one in Japan and then there's a few in America. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's happened with every sort of fantasy genre in general where it kind of gets open sourced. Yeah. So you have this big lore, mm. this big world of lore that's set up by the creators. And then when it gets open sourced, to the consumers, yeah. they start consumer content and that's where it just goes ballistic. <laughs> so imagine what, where you know the Harry, Harry Potterverse could go if you get some of these open world RPGs going oh. and then you get people just furthering their interests within it, like whether it's a house, whether it's a specific faction, like they start creating content for it and then you can get behind it. I mean, if you placed yourself in a Harry Potter RPG and you could create your own character, be from your own house and fight for your own causes. Yeah. What do you think that would look like for you? Alright, so pure blood because I'd want to be a Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> See? It's already <laughs> happening. You know what I mean? It's already happening. Yeah, nah, yeah I've got Slytherin banners in my room and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, I just... That's just what I'd have to do. You know, because I love the whole like the Slytherin ideology in the Harry Potter universe and like how that came apart and they were kind of like the outcasts but then they've been made to look like the bad guys and yeah no that's just something I I appreciate it's this persecution mindset Jay. <laughs> it's this persecution and oppression that equates to success yeah like you've got yeah. to turn that it's like diamonds out of pressure you know yeah. I mean? like you, you turn yourself into this absolute diamond through the pressure yeah because of the pressure that's right yes this seems to be a pretty prolific theme <laughs> that plays out in your life as well but i'm always a big proponent of you need the duality of all things mm, right definitely. So, um so you know with my batman collection okay so you've got a corner yes all right i've got a few corners yeah <laughs> i got a few corners in my house of batman collection and yeah. you know i have an entire villain's cabinet yeah right and one of those you know, Joker obviously has his own entire section of it, but it's it's that it's that duality of things, right? Batman and the Joker. There is no Batman without Joker. There is right. no Joker without Batman. Yeah, and it's kind of like yin and yang. Like 
Batman is a dark, looming, visually you know, evil mm. specter. Yeah. Done purposefully to instill fear yes. within people. And he has an underlying drive of good, yeah. even though he is intrinsically flawed. <laughs> right? He has this moral code that leads him to justice. Immersed in vengeance, yeah. right? Yeah. Joker is a clown, a yeah. visually disarming, you know, traditionally positive, happy go lucky clown who is beneath the surface beneath the surface chaos yes. personified right yes. so you always need the duality even to tell a story even to tell a narrative like to have a narrative you need the protagonist and the antagonist yeah, that's right. so we need the Nick Hughes's yeah. we need the Jake Hurls <laughs> in order to tell the good story you know what I mean but even with that being said you write your own story yeah you're yeah. going to tell your story about how you want to be portrayed how you portray yourself yeah and if you identify with these types of things there's got to be a reason for that yeah and there's so many people throughout the entire planet who identify with that side of things mm. because of their upbringing because of their views because of their mentality and they're not wrong mm. and there's people on the other side of that coin who are also not wrong yeah right? Right. we just do things differently yeah for sure. and we all turn into diamonds yeah eventually yeah eventually that's right so moving forward are there any wishes that you have in terms of the way you see you know certain fights playing out or with your mma career maybe you want to do a boxing fight maybe you want to do a grappling con maybe is there anything that you want to happen i mean i asked the twins this question as well yeah because i always said that they'd be great bare knuckle boxes you know yeah. and you could probably I, I bet you'd be a bare knuckle boxer <laughs> but i worry about heavyweight bare knuckle boxes and light lightweight class bare knuckle boxes because yeah. heavyweights will destroy their hands and other people's heads yeah but light like flyweights and below you're gonna get such a high level of cosmetic damage like you're gonna oh. get cuts galore yeah. you know what i mean like your hands are just gonna be pulped afterwards it's gonna be like a long solid cut fest yeah. you know what i mean yeah. but what do you want for your fighting career well i think i did enough bare knuckle boxing in high school so <laughs> <laughs> now i reckon um i'd love to do a boxing fight but obviously that's under my coach's discretion yeah. um, I'm one to believe in the people that believe in me so yeah. whatever my coaches say I'll do but in terms of MMA you know the dreams to make it a career like a full time career I want to be a fighter it's the only thing I think about like that's the only thing that's in my mind so unfortunately my record sucks I know it, but that's because of the fights I've taken and the people I've fought and that's going to build me up hopefully for my next fights so I want to fight as consistently as I can mm. like all I want to do is fight. So now that a few things in my life have come to a finish, mm -hmm. next year or whenever those next fights, like I want one after another after another. And yeah. that's, I want to just make it a regular bit of my life. Yeah. You know? So that's, that's the dream. Yeah. I've always thought that you've had the propensity to do that as well. And I mean, we've got three grappling competitions coming up. We've got yeah. Apex coming up. I know that... Um, you know, Knees of Fury have started up again in New Zealand. Resurrection of the Warrior is going to start up again here. So what I'm saying is there's things happening. Yeah, yeah. It's more, it's looking, we can be a little bit more optimistic than we were, say, even a month ago. Yeah. Just based on the way that things are being scheduled right now. And a lot of people are in your position as well, where they're looking forward into the new year going, okay, 
I've got an opportunity for the next, you know, X amount of time to skill develop, to really put it in hard and then make a run yeah. towards the, the beginning of next year. And, um, you know me, man, I've, I've always believed really heavily, heavily in your abilities and heavily in your capacity as a fighter. And, um, I've pushed it, you know, I've pushed it every step of the way. And sometimes I've pushed you into positions where, you know, there's been a skill gap mm. because I felt like you can rise to that occasion and I also know what I see. Like, I know what I see in the academy. Yeah. And I know what I see when the right type of Jake has the opportunity to show up. Yeah. You know, if, if the right Jake didn't get a chance, if you, didn't, if you didn't get a chance beforehand, then you won't get a chance in the fight. If yeah. you get the best type of support that you can possibly have before the fight, you're going to have the best type of performance in the fight. And that's very important. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to touch on just to you know, discuss another facet of your existence is um, your work. So what, <laughs> I think people might be a little surprised to hear about what you do for your work. Yeah, so... If you wanted to talk about it. Yeah, no, I may as well. So I work in childcare. Yep. So I look after kids. Um, you know, we hang out. We have a good time. <laughs> it's cool. Like, you know, the ages range from four to like 13. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, we pretty much like you know we'll we'll hang out, we'll draw, we'll play dodgeball, we'll play PlayStation. So yeah, it doesn't even feel like a job. I'm just having fun. So mm, that's awesome. Yeah. And you went through uh, a a concerted period of study in order to take those jobs. Uh, so actually, the jobs started before I was studying. Okay. So I was, for those of you who don't know as well, I've done four degrees now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was studying a psychology degree. Then I did an English degree, English and history, sorry. And during that time, I needed a bit bit of extra work because, you know, I wanted money. So then I started working in the childcare. And it was through working with the kids and stuff that I was like, shit, like, this is really fun and it doesn't feel like work. And that's what I would like my life to be like. Like, if I have to do something, I don't want to feel like I have to do it. And then I started studying to work with them in like a more professional sense yeah. as well. So, but yeah, that's what I do. I, I look after kids. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you feel like, you know, moving forward with that as a, as a career pathway or as, or as a pseudo career pathway, you can start to bring together some of your experiences. You know, you know what your life was like and your upbringing. And if you begin to see pathways for yourself that you've been forging, do you think that, you know, speaking to kids along these lines and along these terms about forging those pathways and sharing those life lessons. Is that something that attracts you to, to working with kids? Yeah, definitely. Like I noticed a lot of the older boys at my work, um, particularly like the 12, 13 year olds, they were really drawn to me mm. um, and we were able to converse really well and they were very understanding of what I was saying because I related to them and they could relate to me. Where a few of the other staff members and stuff, they're a bit more like, different upbringings, different kind of like perspectives. So I felt like, oh, if I can relate to these kids and they listen to me, like maybe there's other people out there that could listen and I could like kind of not help them, but like get them to understand themselves. No, of course, of course help them. Of course help them. It's just like I I talked about with Reese. There is no better person in a standing to help them than someone who's walked in their shoes. Yeah. And don't, don't discount your capacity to do so even just imparting a perspective, even just saying, hey, I've been where you've been. Yeah. And this is where I'm going. 
Mm. You don't have to do it exactly like me, but you can do it. Yeah. It's like, that's not something that kids in that position always get to hear. Uh, and even if they do hear it, they're hearing it from someone they don't want to hear it from. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. It, it really is the biggest thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I remember going through school and yeah, I was great through year seven, eight, nine, <clears throat> come year 10. I didn't want a bar of it, man. Yeah. And you could say that I was a, you know, a gifted student or a high achiever. Maybe I was just a little shit. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Maybe I had, maybe I was just bored and I'd lost and I got straight A's, but I lost any motivation to be a part of the system. Yeah. And all of my motivation was geared towards questioning absolutely every process <laughs> and system that was put in front of me because for some reason that was you know it's a i guess that was an it's a natural and inevitable backlash and rebellion against the regimented type of lifestyle that i was living up until that point in time being an athlete being a swimmer or whatever that might be yeah and also being kind of sheltered in a way and then when i sort of saw people being treated bad i think that's something that if you get treated bad Maybe you can brush that off a little bit and you can be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like maybe yeah. you have some ideas about yourself. Maybe you're really confident or maybe you're not confident and you go, oh, I deserve to be treated like that. Or if you're super confident, you don't necessarily believe the shit that people say to you, right? Yeah. But if you see other people being treated poorly or what you deem to be unfairly, that invokes within you a very different type of reaction, a very rebellious action. Very rebellious type of reaction. I think that's what happened with me as well. I started to reject everything. But I had some relatively okay counselors around me uh, who were just like, look, it's not about the content. It's not about the subject matter. It's about you going away, you know, studying a topic, putting it in your own words, and then reporting your findings. If you can master that, yeah. then don't worry about what it is. Don't worry about if it's maths or don't worry about if it's SNE in a society environment. It doesn't relate to you. It's not relevant to you. Don't worry about what this teacher is saying to you. Don't worry about I'd never heard it put to me like that before. Yeah, that's really good. And up until that point, uh, the information that was coming at me was coming at me from people I couldn't relate to. Yeah. It was coming out to me from people I didn't respect. Yeah. Right? But I had... You know, you have a counselor who's outside of the system, uh, who maybe speaks to you in a different way than you're used to from like a top-down authoritative perspective. And then they can state it to you in a way that's very matter of fact. And I felt that when it was stated to me in that format, it was the truth. Yeah. That was an honest perspective. And I think that uh, you have a platform and you have the capacity to speak very openly and very honestly to kids who have had the same type of upbringing that you've had, but also that maybe you just feel they feel the same as you mm. or they're looking at the world the same as you, even if they didn't have the same type of upbringing, even if they're not exactly the same. Yeah. They're thinking along the same lines. And then you get to be the person who says to them, here's the truth. Yeah, that's it. This is what it really is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So again, do not discount your capacity to aid others because... We beat them up, but we also build them up. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sometimes that's just how it's going to be. Yeah, no, you're right, 100%. All right, moving into the final five minutes now, man, I always give a little bit of an opportunity to say thank you. If there's anyone in your life you wish to say thank you to or anything 
you want to give thanks for, please, you've got the chair. Yep, great. So first off, I want to thank my main and biggest sponsor, Fourth Element Hip Hop Shop in Perth. If you want any aerosol graffiti needs, <laughs> hit them up. And they're also the, the, the nicest people. They paid me more than I've ever been paid for a flight before. So hit them up, the other man. Uh, I want to thank Pete at the train station, another sponsor, my strength and conditioning slash taekwondo coach. So, you know, if you want to work out, learn how to kick, kick him up. <laughs> Everyone at Trinity MMA, my coaches, Nick Hughes, the man. Um, Lee Jenkins as well. His boxing is like, leveled me up a lot. Watch out in my next fight because it's going to be chaos thanks to him. <laughs> and yeah, that's pretty much what I want to say. So awesome, thank man. you. Thank you so much for coming in and having a chat with me today, man. It's been very insightful and I hope that people got to see a little bit more of the layered human being that uh, that is the Fire Lord. And I, I always love getting a chance to come in and, and talk to my friends for an hour because, you know, that's all this really is. Yeah. This whole podcast thing is just an excuse to say nice things about people <laughs> to their face in front of them for an hour. So, yeah, it'll, I always walk out of here feeling pretty happy. But, um, you know, I appreciate that and I appreciate you. And again... I get to say thank you for coming into the academy, coming back to the academy, and being part of our team. You bring so much to this team. You're a great asset. Yes, highly coachable, but everyone who watches you spar and sees you train also learns something as well. So I'm very, very thankful for that. And I'm very, very optimistic about what you can achieve moving forward into the future in your personal life, in your professional life, and as a fighter as well. Oh, All thank right. you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for listening. Make sure you stay tuned because we're going to be back same bat time, same bat channel for all the bat fans out there. See you later.